how to take the gardening space and specifically the soil that you have and make sure that it is in tip top shape with some pretty easy, simple tests and know-how so that you get the absolute most amount of harvest possible from the spots and the plants that you already have. I think most gardeners and homesteaders, we are really big on getting the absolute most that we can out of everything. We really know how to use our resources. No matter if you are brand new to gardening and raising your own food, or you have been at this for a while, on today's episode, which is actually part two, we are going to be diving into how to test your soil. Specifically, we're going to be talking pH levels what that means for the plants that you're going to be growing, how to amend it, and the ways that we do this here on our homestead, not only with our garden soil, but also with our pasture. This is episode number 135 of the Pioneering Today podcast with me, your host, Melissa K. Norris, where we teach families how to grow, preserve, and cook their own food using old-fashioned skill sets, and wisdom to create a natural, self-sufficient home with or without the full-on homestead. Welcome. I am really excited for today's episode, and I'm so glad that you are here joining me. So before we dive into it, a couple of things to note. This is part two. So if you have not listened to part one, which is episode number 134, six natural fertilizers to improve your garden soil for a larger harvest, you really do want to go back and listen to that part number one, because this builds upon what we already went on in depth on part one. And to get any of the resources or look at our past episodes that I'm referring to, just know that with every single episode, there is a full-on blog post with links to additional resources, and you can always find those. You can either go to melissaknorris.com slash 135, because this is episode number 135, or simply go to melissaknorris.com, click on that podcast button, and you will find every single episode listed for you in chronological order. This past week, I was asked, why do you garden? Why do you grow your own food? Why do you garden? And the simple, really short answer was, well, because I enjoy it. And I do. Once you start growing your own food, now don't get me wrong, there are always challenges. I don't care how many years you have been growing a garden and growing your own food, you are always going to have a challenge and encounter something new. And that's kind of the beauty of it. You're always learning. And I really do believe that that is a trait of homesteaders and people who are wanting to become more self-sufficient. We have a hunger for learning things. And I think it's probably the most important skill set, really, the ability and the want to learn things, to not assume that you know it all or to just be, I don't want to say not to be happy with where you're at because we should be content with where we're at. There's a beauty of being having joy and contentness no matter what happens in life. But always striving and wanting to learn more, I think that that is the number one skill set that will serve you well in life no matter what it is you apply it to. I mean, it applies to everything but especially with to gardening as well. 
But I had to sit and think about the answer to that question. Why do we garden? Why do we grow our own food? As I sat and I thought about it, here's what I came up with and why we grow our own food. One, health. I know exactly what is in my food. I know exactly what's not in it. I know because we only use organic methods and heirloom seeds, but also nutritional-wise. It gets to fully ripen on the vine. I get to harvest it at its peak and then immediately consume it or preserve it when it's at its peak and it has its most nutrients. Reason number two, it is frugal. My grocery bill goes down so much in the summer months when we're able to eat fresh, but also year round. There are so many things that we have increased year after year after year that we're able to grow enough of that food and to preserve it to take us through an entire year. So there are many items that I literally never, ever buy from the grocery store. And it's an incredible feeling. I'm not going to lie to you. When you start preserving, dehydrating, canning your own food, and you are building a pantry or a food storage larder system, whatever you want to call it, you will go, mark my words, you will go and you will open the door, the cupboard, wherever it is, And you'll just kind of stare at it in admiration and be like, this is so cool that we did this. So there's that feeling of accomplishment and it kind of gives you confidence. It's really cool to know that you're not relying on big corporations or big agriculture or anybody else that you were able to do it yourself. It's just a really cool feeling. The other thing too is there's tradition. So in my family, I was, I'm a fifth generation homesteader. I was born and raised growing up. We always had a garden, raised some of our own livestock and raised some of our own food. And I feel really blessed that my husband wasn't raised that way, but he's come into it, fully accepted it, and we get to raise our kids that way. And I know I'm passing on these traditions and the skill sets to my kids, not only from my own family, but I think that in today's society, especially with our food, that we have a big disconnect on where food really comes from, what goes into our food, and just knowing how to do it. And I think there's something incredibly powerful and really important that our kids, not just kids, adults, anybody understands that connection and gets to experience it. And of course, there's the whole self-sufficiency part of it, which I've talked about already, is I know what we can do. And I know we can do more if we need to, but we get to practice that. And our goal is just every year to do a little bit more than we did the previous year. The other reason is family time. So raising all of the food that we do here on our homestead is a full family affair. I'm teaching my kids skill sets. They are definitely learning. And for the most part, they enjoy it. They really do. When I look back on my childhood, some of my most fond memories were actually working together as a family to do everything. Now, I can't say as a kid that I actually, when my mom told me to go weed the garden, that I was super excited about it. But looking back, oh, hindsight, oh my goodness, is she a great thing. (laughs) Looking back, I'm really glad for it. I learned a lot. And my dad would tell stories about his family and growing up and different things that had happened because he grew up during the Great Depression. And their family, except for just a few staples such as sugar and cornmeal and flour and salt that was purchased at the store, pretty much everything that they ate, not during just the Great Depression, but even beyond that, if they didn't raise it and put it up themselves, they were going to go hungry. I mean, that was a real thing. I love listening to the stories. And even now, I'll even go down and listen to my dad tell different stories and different things that they did. 
it's that connection to the past, but it's also building those memories and building the bonds up as a family because there's something pretty cool that happens when you start to work together as a family unit with that common goal and raising our own food is one of those goals. So you might have been able to tell there, I could not pick just one reason. That brings me to two important things. Then we will dive straight into the episode, Pinky Promise. Having a community that feels the same way, because not everybody gets the whole gardening thing or gets wanting to be self-sufficient or all these reasons. And as I said, constantly learning is one of the best skill sets that we are ever, ever going to have is to constantly learn. And so in regards to growing and raising your own food, becoming more self-sufficient and all those little things that can happen in the garden and you're wondering, why did this happen to my plants? Our goal is to make each other's paths easier. And if we've learned something is to share that with someone else so that you don't have to go through that pitfall or lose that crop or deal with that disease or whatever the problem may be. Part of that is having a community of people who are doing this. It's an actual lifestyle. It's something that they're doing. And if you're listening to this podcast, you are one of those. You may be baby. You may just be stepping into it. This might be your first year, but that's where you want to go. So I've got two things. First up, I am doing an encore presentation of the live free. And when I say live, it's online, but I'm actually live in real time with you. So you just get a login from your computer or tablet and you're going to be there with me. I'm doing a live encore presentation next week, March 2018. You can go and sign up today. You do have to be registered to get your information to join the class and the resources that go with that. Totally 100% free. We had almost 2,000 people join us last month when I held this class, and I got numerous emails from people saying, oh my goodness, I got so much information. I'm so excited. I've got my whole plan down now, and I know exactly what we're going to be doing to raise our own food and how we're going to implement this. I can't believe it. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for this class. I get so excited too. I am so excited to partner with you and that we get to do this together. It's pretty incredible. So if you did not get signed up or you didn't get to go to that class, you got to do so. Go to melissaknorris.com slash food webinar and get yourself registered for the class. We're going to be having it on Wednesday March 28th, 2018, and all the specifics will be there. Pop on that link to get your seat. The other cool thing, because I've been talking about community and sharing all of this knowledge, and I love being on the podcast with you. You and me, we get to have this conversation every week. I get to talk with you, but it's really fun to be able to interact with not just me, but with others. Community, right? My goal for the next year is to have 10,000 families raising at least one food crop, an entire year's worth of one food crop by 2019. I hope that you will join me. I'm going to be launching something very soon that is totally free that's going to help you with this. But if you will get the invite and be able to join it and find out about it first, if you have been registered either the past showing or this one that we've got coming up for the Raise Enough Food for a Year webinar. Y'all are my peeps, and so you're going to get first access. So make sure you get yourself registered for the class. That's happening March 28th, but then we're going to have some other really cool, I'm so excited about it. I'm trying not to spill the beans because it's not quite ready yet, but you will get first invite. Okay, how's that for teasers? So go get yourself registered. Okay, let's dive into today's episode. 
We've already talked about amending your soil if it was deficient in certain nutrients and how those affect different plants, how to find all of that out when we're talking natural fertilizers. That was on part one, which was episode number 134. Today, we're going to be talking about the pH level of your soil and what does that mean? The pH level of your soil, we're going to go back to probably middle school, maybe high school, science class a little bit. So you got the pH scale, right? So on that pH scale, seven is neutral. Anything above seven is you increase in numbers, so eight, nine, ten, is alkaline. Anything below seven on your pH scale, so the lower the number, the higher in acidity that you go. And your soil has a pH scale. The reason that this is important for those of us who are growing food is different plants will thrive in different soils because having the correct soil pH for those specific plants allow it to absorb the needed nutrients to grow and thrive, which is why in part one, we were talking about all of the nutrients that you need to put back in soil and how to find out if your soil is deficient in those certain nutrients. Because if those nutrients aren't in the soil to begin with, the plant's not going to be able to extract them regardless of pH level. So that's why we kind of had that as part one. Now we're talking about part two. We're going to get into the pH level of your soil. How do you test the pH level of your soil? It's actually a pretty easy test to do. But in true homesteader fashion, we've got options, y'all. I'm all about options. The most accurate, of course, which is going to let you know the exact pH level because it's not necessarily just seven, six, five, four on down. You're going to have 5.2, 5.5, 6.5, right? We're going to get into decimals there. Most county extension offices will test your soil, except mine. Last time I called, I'm in Washington State. They don't actually offer that service. There is other labs that they would refer you to, but they themselves don't do it. I think we're the exception for the most part of the country or in the United States in that regards. So check with your local county extension office first if you're interested in doing the lab test. And this option is not going to give you not only, I should say, not only going to give you your pH level, but it's also going to give you the levels of your other minerals and nutrients in your soil. Now, if you're only after the pH level of your soil, there's some little meters that are pretty inexpensive. I'm talking less than 15 bucks. They allow you to test multiple spots in your garden and your containers, and I've got links to that in the resource section. What's nice about having these is if you've got container plants, raised beds, regular garden soil. We do. We have multiple spots that we raise food all throughout the homestead kind of ranging. This little meter, you can go from spot to spot to spot to spot to test it. That's pretty cool. And you can use it over and over and over again. That also is going to let you know after you have worked on amending your soil, how much of a change you had. So then you can test it again at home without having to resend everything off to a lab. So that can be a cool way to go too. Option number three, this is an at-home test that uses vinegar and baking soda. And full disclosure, I have not used this method. There's a little bit of controversy or people not sure that it really, how true and how effective it is, but then there's other people who swear by it. So I'm just giving you the options. You can totally decide which one is best for you and which route that you wanna go. The gist of this is it will let you know if your soil is acidic or if it's alkaline. 
It's not going to probably show up if it's borderline, and it's going to just be general guidance if you use this test. It's not going to give you exact. Like I said, you're not going to know if it's really acidic or just slightly acidic. You're just going to know it's acidic. But the test, the way to do it at this little at-home test, you just basically take some soil and in one jar, you're going to be adding some vinegar to it. The other jar, you're going to be adding some baking soda and some water, and you will see if it foams vice versa, how all that works to show you if it's acidic or alkaline. And I've got a link in the show notes at the blog post that you can go and check that out if you want to do that. I already know that our soil here in the Pacific Northwest is slightly acidic due to the needles from evergreen trees. And we have a heavy rainfall, which also ups our acidity level. So once you know if your soil's acidic or alkaline, how do you amend the pH level of your soil? There's two main ways that people will amend the pH level of your soil, but I'm going to also share some alternatives that we've used with good success because I'm pretty friendly that way. Now, if your soil is alkaline and you need to make it more acidic, so you need to lower that pH level, use elemental sulfur. Organic gardeners will use elemental sulfur to decrease the pH level So remember, lower on the pH scale, the more acidic. But you want to make sure if you go to a big gardening center and you say, I need to get some sulfur to increase the acid in my soil, that you get elemental sulfur and not aluminum sulfate when you purchase it. Check the bag, flip it over, look at the ingredients, and make sure it says elemental sulfur, not aluminum sulfate. Also, an important caution note, because it's important that we have these two, When you are lowering the pH level of your soil to make it more acidic, never try and lower it more than one pH level in a given year. This advice, and when I was researching this article as well in this podcast episode, numerous different places confirmed this. But as I mentioned before, I have got a friend who is a longtime organic gardener. And I mean, she's actually certified organic. She also has commercial and all of that. And she is really been a great resource for me. And then I get to pass it on to you guys. See, it's that whole community thing, passing it on. She's actually the first person that told me that when we were talking about blueberries, because blueberries love acidic soil. She's the first one that gave me that tip. Make sure you're not trying to lower it too much in any given time. So I'm passing that on to you. You also want to make sure that you really read the instructions on the sulfur that you use, because you want to make sure you don't apply too much If needed, general rule of thumb is it's better to do two applications over a period of time in a year instead of trying to do it all at once so that you're not lowering it too much at one time. A little bit here is actually better than a whole bunch. But there's other options for increasing your acidity. One of those is peat moss. And we're going to talk about some myths or some other ways that people will use to lower their acidity too lab testing wise, does it really work? So we're going to talk about that in a minute, specifically is coffee. Okay. Gave you a hint there for your coffee grounds. What if your soil is too acidic and you need to make it more alkaline? Well, general rule of thumb or kind of the first piece of advice that you'll find or hear is to use lime or calcium. There is varying points of view on using lime, which is made from crushed limestone. And who would have thought within homesteading and gardening, guys, we have controversy over so many things. But there's those varying points of view on using lime versus ground up oyster shells. Both of these will increase the alkalinity. But if your soil already has a high magnesium level, 
you don't want to use Lyme, which again is why having those tests done by a lab that will tell you is really important. But it's also important to understand how the things that you are using to amend your soil, fertilize it, change pH levels, how they actually work in the soil and in regards to how the plant uses that nutrient. So really do your due diligence and understand how these different things work. Because if you didn't know this and you just went and grabbed some lime and you didn't know what your magnesium level was, it would change, right, your alkalinity level, but it could also do some harm. So that's why I say always do your own research And it's always a good idea when you're doing research, which you guys know this because you're listening to this and homesteaders are just smart cookies. But you always want to do your research from more than one place and try to find some of the scientific data to back it up when you're doing your research. So if you have high magnesium levels in your soil, then that's when you want to use ground up oyster shells. I've got recommended resources for you scattered throughout this blog post. So if these are some things that you want to use and different things like that, you can go and grab those links in the blog post. Now, no matter what type of the above mentioned soil amendments that we've been talking about, it's really best to work these into the top six inches of your soil. You can do a top dressing, which means if you're going to amend pasture or you're going to amend your garden. You can sprinkle on the calcium or the lime, whichever it is that you're using, on top. And that's called a top dressing, right? Because we're just placing it on top. But it's going to be more effective. It's going to break down. It's going to get into the soil better for then the plants to absorb it if you can work it into the existing soil. When it comes to alkalinity of your soil, you can also use wood ash. Wood ash is something that I will use when we are doing beets. And I've got a list, we're going to get to that, on plants that like acid or like more alkaline soil. So moving on back to coffee grounds. Do coffee grounds make your soil more acidic? As I said, this is an area of great debate with gardeners, but the short answer is no. Using used coffee grounds isn't going to significantly raise the pH level of your soil, but, 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 Using coffee grounds can be a great soil builder and natural fertilizer. So I have linked to you, because I always say, let's try to link to the sources and the studies whenever possible, a study done by a lab for Sunset Magazine that has a great breakdown of how coffee grounds improve your soil. Most notable is the phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, and copper levels. Specifically, this study was done on used coffee grounds from Starbucks. In summary, and I'm quoting from this study and from sunset.com, in summary, the available plant essential elements, which will be substantially improved where the coffee grounds are used as a soil amendment, include phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, and copper. I have used coffee grounds for years on my blueberries, raspberries, and my tomatoes. There's a couple of key things to know, though, that I have learned over using these. And one of the beauties of using your used coffee grounds is that's something we'd normally be throwing out, but we can use that to make compost and to improve our soil, which is pretty cool. I get excited about that stuff. One key thing to note, though, is you really want to make sure that you spread out the coffee grounds in a thin layer and then work it into the soil or mulch. So I don't really use it as a top dressing. It's something that I work into the soil. It's also recommended 
by Sunset's test to keep the coffee grounds to a 25 to 35% volume ratio when you're mixing it in with your mulch or your soil. Wet coffee grounds, and this is from another source. Now, I knew that the wet coffee grounds, just from my own experience, they will mold. So if you put them in a really thick layer and just leave them on top of a top dressing, just on top of the soil, they will grow mold. And here in the Pacific Northwest, where we are naturally wet, or if you live somewhere that has probably high humidity in that, we don't really want to encourage any extra fungal or mold growth. But this was something when I was doing my research, and I linked to the source if you want to check out more about this study, is the wet coffee grounds will clump together, which I knew, and they will grow mold. But I didn't know that they can also create a barrier for moisture and air circulation. So that's why thin layer, work it into the soil, don't use more than that 25 to 35% volume, and you'll be good to go. Now, you might be thinking, I really don't want to deal with these all these things of changing the pH levels of my soil or amending it. Well, the short answer to that is then pick the plant varieties that naturally grow well with what your existing soil pH levels are. Most plants are going to get along just fine if you've got pH levels between 5.5 and 7 without really much of an issue. There are some exceptions to this generality, isn't there always? I've listed out plants for you, and we'll go through that list in just a minute, that really need the high acid levels to grow well. And of special note, as I've mentioned before, is blueberries. They are one of the most acidic-loving plants out there. And to really thrive, you're going to need to amend your soil for your blueberry plants to make it acidic if it's not naturally that way. If you're planning on raising as much of your own food as possible, which I know you are, You don't want to be limited to the plants that only grow well in one type of soil in regards to your pH level. No, you and I, my friend, we want all the goodies in our larders and pantries come wintertime. So this is what we do. How do you grow both acidic and alkaline loving plants together? This is a strategy that we use here on our homestead, and we kind of micromanage the soil pH levels according to the different crops. I plant my high acidic loving plants together so that I'm only amending the soil for acid in one area. I put my rhubarb with my blueberries because I'm already amending the soil for my blueberries to make it more acidic and rhubarb loves acidity. That way I'm only having to amend one spot of soil and I can put those multiple crops in there. Generally speaking, when you're amending your soil for pH, it's usually a once a year thing because again, we don't want to change the pH level too drastically in a short period of time. Your soil over time is going to revert back to whatever its natural pH level is. That's why every year, once a year with my perennial plants specifically, and I'm talking about raspberries, blueberries, and my rhubarb right now, they're staying in that same soil spot year after year. So I amend that soil once in the spring by adding my fur fur mulch to it. That also doubles as mummy berry. It's a fungus that can infect blueberries as my mummy berry protection and my moisture retention in the summer months because blueberries have really shallow roots. Then when I plant beets, I add a small amount of wood ash to that row only just when I'm planting the beet seed. That way, the next year when I go to plant something else there because we practice crop rotation, the pH level is pretty much went back to its normal, slightly acidic range. So fruits and vegetables that prefer high acidic soil, and the acidic soil is from 0 to 0.26.9 pH level. And 
in retrospect to levels for your garden and fruits and vegetables, the 4.5 to 5.5 pH level is considered high acidic. So these are the plants that really need high acidic soil, blueberries, cranberries, currants, elderberries, peppers, potatoes, rhubarb, and raspberries. Not to say that they're not going to grow if the soil's not that low on the pH scale, but they're going to do better. And if you try and plant them in alkaline, you're likely going to run into issues and the plants aren't going to thrive very well and they're not going to give you as good of a harvest. This is our fruits and vegetables that prefer alkaline soil. So that is going to be anything that's a 7.1 to 10 pH level. Asparagus, beets, leek, marjoram, and parsnips. There's a lot of other crops that were not mentioned at all in here, and that's because generally speaking, they're going to do pretty good in just a general range. They don't need to be really alkaline or really acidic in order to thrive. Now, how about your pasture, your pasture soil? Because that's a little bit different than your garden soil. What we do is because our soil here in the Pacific Northwest is slightly acidic naturally, we don't do it every year, usually every two to three years, we will use some lime out on our pasture. We just do a top dressing when it's something on pasture where you're not going to be disking or tilling it up. We just get it. You can get it in pretty big bags. You could also do the ground up oysters. And if you go the oyster route for your calcium, usually you'll see something it says oyster flour. Now, it's not oyster flour that you're going to be cooking with, but it's ground up so fine. It's like the consistency of flour because the more fine that it's ground up or the smaller the particles are, the easier and faster it's going to break down and get into your soil. So that's something that you'll want to look for whichever route you're doing. But what we do is because we have 14.96, to be precise, acres here on our homestead. And a good portion of that is to pasture because we have our organic grass-fed beef cattle. And then we usually do pigs and all my chickens. All of that is out on the pasture. What we'll do is you can get these little spreaders and you just pour whatever you're putting on. And in our case, it's either going to be the oyster or the lime. You pour it into there and then it's got little wheels and you just push it and it scatters it and it spreads it out in so many feet around it. And so you just push it over the top. So it's kind of like if you were pushing a lawnmower, right? You just pick your pattern and go across this, the field and it's going to scatter it out for you so you don't have to do it by hand. That's what we do for our pasture. Now, I suppose if you're you know, a huge farm and you've got tons of acreage and you're growing crops that way, then that's when they will use tractors with huge spreaders. We just do the little hand route. There's even been times to make sure you, if it's something you need to wear gloves with that you're wearing gloves, but you can put it in a bag and you can scatter it by hand. But having that little push push thing, I don't even know the technical name of it. So sorry for my push thing description. But if you've got that, that works really well for smaller areas. And usually what we'll do is we'll kind of rotate. We'll do the top field one time and then we'll do our bottom pasture. So we can rotate. And like I said, we don't do it every year. We do it about every other or every two to three years is how we do that. Your pasture, that soil is growing the feed for your animals. The health of our soil really indicates the health of our plants. And especially long-term when you are growing year after year after year, regardless if it's vegetables or if it's livestock, we want to take really good care of our soil because that's what is ultimately feeding us. That soil feeds the plant or the livestock then we are going to be consuming that. And our health starts with our soil. It's kind of the foundation. 
For our verse of the week, y'all are still in Exodus with me. We're almost out of Exodus, but we're going to be in Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in his hand, he did not know that the skin of his face shone and sent forth beams by reason of his speaking with the Lord. And that's the Amplified Translation of the Bible. So I've been journaling my way through the Bible, and I started in Genesis, of course, the beginning, and I'm going through. This was the notes that I wanted to share with you. It was actually a prayer. So do you mind if I pray for you? We're going to say a little prayer real quick. Lord, let us be so immersed in you that our lives and very being shines and reflects your glory as a visual testament to all we encounter of the wonder of your love. That is my prayer for you. That is my prayer for me. I want to thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Pioneering Today podcast. I so appreciate getting to spend time with you. Remember, go get yourself registered for the class, and that's also going to set you up so that you're going to get first notice of the other really fun, free, cool things I've got all about helping you grow and raise your own food. That link is moleskinoris.com slash food webinar, or simply go, this is episode number 135, and you can get all of the information in the blog post that accompanies this episode. Have an awesome day. We are going to be talking soon. I hope to see you in class on Wednesday. Bye for now.